And turn with me or listen on as I read. Now for the third and what is, I think, the final time we shall read Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, which occurs in the midst of these six great questions which the Apostle Paul asks. Two of the six. Beginning with this, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And let us pray together. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you again that by your word you reveal great and mighty truths to us. We confess to you that we are sinners. We need this doctrine of justification by grace through faith apart from it we have nothing and yet by it we have all we ask you that it might come to us with such clarity that well we would never doubt it again and we ask this in jesus name amen well as i indicated and as you know this is now uh the third sermon which i'm preaching on these Two verses. I, I had intended to preach it in one sermon, and then I realized I really had two, so I preached that one sermon in two sermons. Only it occurred to me I really hadn't said it all. In these two verses, verses 33 and 34, the Apostle Paul states uh, what is my favorite doctrine, and what, I, what is, I hope, your favorite doctrine as well. That is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He states that doctrine so clearly. He states it so triumphantly, so gloriously, and indeed so defiantly in the face of Satan and all uh, his accusers. We might think of Luther and Calvin defying the Roman Catholic Church upon this foundation. Here's a man defying those uh, who teach justification by works who seek to condemn the believer because he's a sinner, Paul states it so defiantly and thereby uh, crystallizes all that he has said about this doctrine into one simple assertion that any believer can make at any time, especially at such times in which he is apt to doubt his salvation and especially his justification, uh, that I am simply unwilling to leave the matter there. I feel uh, justified, if I could put it that way, in preaching one final sermon. What am I seeking to do here in this final sermon? Well, what I'm seeking to do, to use the language of uh, the Puritans, is to preach the doctrine of justification experimentally. Now, we don't usually use that word anymore. I'm not talking about an experiment in a laboratory. (laughs) When I say experimental preaching, I'm talking about preaching a doctrine Uh, in such a way that I am describing the believer's experience of that doctrine. And so the question that I am interested in uh, solely in this morning sermon, what is, I hope, the final sermon on these two verses, is do we know what it is to be justified? You say, well, I'm a Christian, okay? I ask you this question. Do you know what it is to be justified? You notice I didn't ask, do you know what justification is? Now, I'm going to ask that in a moment. I'm asking you something a little bit different. Do you, do you know it in such a way that you've experienced it? You see, I'm placing justification in the realm of 
conscious experience. That's what it means to preach a doctrine experimentally. The grace of justification not merely known as a proposition or a truth to be believed, but as a genuine experience of God's grace. And I'm asking you all, have you had this experience of God's grace in your life? Have you been justified by faith? Have you been one who looked for God's favor in Christ and found it? Like he who looked for the pearl of great price and found it. Jesus describes it like that. Or someone who could say it is well with my soul. You see, you're not just saying it's well with the soul of he who is justified. You're actually able to say it's well with my soul. And so he's like this. Do you remember Paul in the beginning of this larger section, Romans chapter 5, verse 1? He's describing not merely the doctrine. He already did that. He's describing our experience of it. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations and on and on he goes. Do you realize that what the Apostle Paul is describing there is an experience, our experience of grace? Here is, I I am saying, the, the, the grandest, the most exalted doctrine I think there is, the one worth defending above all. And I'm asking you if you know it in an experimental way. And do you realize that what Paul is doing In Romans chapter 5 through chapter 8. And we're nearing the end of that grand section. Is he begins with faith in the gospel. And he ends with assurance. His faith in the gospel of justification by faith alone. The gospel of grace becomes an assurance of salvation. Now in developing this theme. I was reminded of and and digging back into two works in particular. You might notice I have four works beside me, but there's two in particular that I'll I'll be quoting uh, with special frequency in this sermon. Uh, One of which is Sinclair Ferguson's The Whole Christ. And the whole of that book is a book on assurance. Uh, The second work is uh, Jonathan Edwards' The Religious Affections, which Uh, to my surprise in reading it recently, is also a book on assurance. Only he's distinguishing true and false assurance, the, the assurance of the true believer and the false assurance of the hypocrite. We'll get to that in due time. But I want to begin in this way. I want to begin with the doctrine itself, as I said I would. The doctrine of justification by faith alone. Uh, many of you know the story of Michael Horton going to Uh, one of the Christian conferences and just asking people, this is a Christian conference, everyone there claims to be a Christian and asking people, do you know what the doctrine of justification by faith alone is? And almost no one could answer it. Now, I wonder if we would have a similarly embarrassing experience in this church. Are we able to state confidently and assuredly after all these sermons in Romans with one great theme, what the doctrine of justification by faith alone is? means there are too many in the church today who cannot do so and that leads to an assure uh, to a situation this is the, the the whole thesis of my sermon this leads to a situation in which assurance becomes impossible there is no possibility 
that any believer could ever enjoy assurance of salvation unless he is clear and thus certain about his justification. And all of Romans has been presented in order that we might enjoy this. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We rejoice. We glory and so on. Do we know what it is? Well, justification can be broken into two parts. And too often we limit it to the first. Justification is an act of God's grace. We're in. He pardons all our sins, number one, and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 33. If you were to memorize any Shorter Catechism question, I recommend you memorize that one, if if only so that you don't have to be embarrassed if anyone should ever ask you what does it mean. And you say, you know, I was told this might happen, and here I am. I don't know. Two parts. It includes the pardon of sin. Jesus Christ on the cross was condemned in my place. I am pardoned freely by his blood. He's the propitiation for my sins. But too many stop there. You see, the slate isn't simply wiped clean. He also accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. The, The slate is not only wiped clean, but in its place, the perfect life of Jesus Christ, which is a life of perfect righteousness, is imputed to me. So that my sins are not only pardoned, but the righteousness of Christ becomes mine by imputation. I'm not only accounted innocent, though a sinner, I'm accounted righteous, received by faith alone. It involves the acquittal of sin and the accepting of our persons as righteous. Acquittal and acceptance, that's a good way to remember it. He pardons our sins, he accepts us as righteous. How? Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to me and received by faith alone. How am I made righteous? By my works? Not at all. It's as a sinner. But it's because I'm in Christ. And how did I get in Christ? It's because I had faith. And now by faith I'm in Christ and all my sins are blotted out. They've been wiped clean and in him I stand as the righteousness of God. Do we understand That justification is a verdict which God gives, a a verdict which he gave, first of all, about his son in his resurrection. In his resurrection, he was justified. He was declared to be righteous in the eyes of the father. He was condemned on the cross and in the resurrection, he was justified. That's the verdict of the father. And now that we're in him, that's the verdict which he makes of us. That's why Paul says uh, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He's the righteous one. And all who are in him share in his righteousness. But when we see justification as the verdict which God gives about us. Do we realize that it's something that is final? It is absolute. It is never to be overturned. Once God has given it, that's it. It's done. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's stating the doctrine is Well, as I said, as triumphantly, as defiantly as any man possibly can. Who who is there to bring a charge? It's God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? It's Christ who died. Yes, rather, who was raised and is seated at the right hand of God who is now interceding for us. You see, he's stating the doctrine. And that's what I'm saying you have to be able to do. If If you can't state the doctrine, well, then you're finished. At least with respect to facing the doubts and the accusations of your own conscience and of the devil. But there is, 
an equal error that robs the believer of assurance, and that is that he doesn't understand its importance. Well, let me state this as clearly as I possibly can. There is no doctrine more important than the doctrine of justification by faith alone. No doctrine more important. It is of the very marrow of the gospel, which means it's of its essence, of its core. It is the foundational truth upon which the gospel and our enjoyment of it stands. The man who doesn't understand the free grace of justification nor its importance is the man whose joy and hope are ever in jeopardy and who will ever live in doubts and despair. As Sinclair Ferguson says, justification is the standing or falling article of the individual Christian. The strength or weakness of our grasp of justification by faith is integrally related to our freedom and joy in Christ. The strength or the weakness of our grasp of justification. In fact, he titles that section, Justification by Grace Alone. Got it? Well, have we got it? Are we, are we clear about this? And do we understand that the strength or weakness of our grasp of this doctrine is, I'll say intimately since I can't seem to say the other word, related to our freedom and joy in Christ? Well, what about assurance as a separate doctrine? Must we be tossed to and fro and never be sure that God is for us and not against us? Here I quote Edwards. He says, God's declared design. Hold on to that phrase. His declared design in all this. That the heirs of the promise might have an undoubting hope and full joy in an assurance of their future glory. His uh, declared design, by the way, he's talking about in the covenant of grace. But obviously we have to understand the nature of those promises which are meant to bring about assurance in our lives. And then we must ask, am I enjoying them as God designed that I would? Edward goes on, all this would be in vain if their interest in those sure promises in ordinary cases was not ascertainable. God's purpose, he means, would not be realized in us if we could not enjoy it in the way he designed it. Well, as the next point, I would ask this question, uh, how justification by faith becomes assurance of salvation. First, I must begin with the doctrine itself. I must ask if I have grasped it for myself. Second, I must see what the doctrine practically is meant to lead to in my life, having believed it, what Edwards calls God's declared design. Those were the first two points I've already made. Third, I must ask, do I ascertain such things in myself? I am aware of God's free grace and justification doctrinally. I understand the doctrine, but am I aware of it in my own case? Am I enjoying the promised benefit? Am I able to ascertain my interest in those sure promises? And how do I do so? How does justification by faith alone become assurance of salvation? Here we must see the connection between faith and and assurance. Just as we see the connection between faith and justification, we must see the, doc, uh, the, the connection between faith and assurance. Let me quote Sinclair Ferguson again. He says, assurance of salvation is the fruit of faith in Christ. Christ is able to and does, in fact, save all those who come to him through faith. The act of faith, therefore, contains within it the seed of assurance. He's saying you begin with faith in Christ by which you're justified and you end up with assurance. 
So what we are considering is the certainty of faith. That's what I'd call it. A faith which is sure, a faith which is certain. And that arises from the conscious exercise of faith. You have to have faith. You have to exercise faith. The act of faith, Ferguson says. The believer who is believing. Faith in that sense contains the seed of assurance. And faith as it is placed in something which is certain. Not something which is uncertain. Faith does not ask, do I have faith enough to be saved? It does not reflect back on itself. It's not trying to measure itself. That isn't how you come upon assurance or arrive at assurance. That's to place faith in the wrong object, myself. Something which is eminently uncertain and the source of all of my uncertainty. It's myself. This is what faith asks Is Christ able to save me? Do you understand the difference between those two questions? Not, do I have faith enough to be saved? That's the wrong question. The right question is, is Christ able to save me? Faith deals with Christ directly. The act of faith. What's the act of faith? It's dealing, again, not with itself, but with Christ. Please understand the difference. Faith is like this. If you remembered a second answer of the, of the shorter catechism, I'm, I'm summarizing it here, but it's the question on saving faith. And what is saving faith? Well, this is what saving faith is. Uh, and these are the acts of saving faith. It is accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for the promised blessing of justification. That's what faith is doing. That's how it's dealing with Christ. It's not boasting in its own worth. It's, it's not boasting in its own works. It's not trying to measure itself and saying, well, you know, I think I have enough faith now to be saved. No, faith in dealing with Christ is accepting, it's receiving, it's resting upon him as the source of every blessing from God. And with respect to justification, faith in dealing with Christ uh, sees this. It occurs to the soul who believes I see in him alone, that is in Christ alone, a righteousness which is able to justify me before God. In myself I find nothing, but in him I find a righteousness which is able to justify me before God. And so I receive and I rest upon that alone, his righteousness, not my own. And the more that I deal with Christ in this way, the more I act in faith upon Christ as my righteousness, the more certain my justification will become to me. The more certainly will I know that in him I am righteous before God. And it is in that sense that the fruit of faith is not only justification, but it is assurance. It is our assurance and our certainty of our justification. And so John Calvin says, Would we not be quite mad to look outside of Christ for what we have already obtained in him and for what can be found solely in him? We have found in him justification and righteousness and life. Would we look for our assurance now in ourselves? Or would we keep looking to him what we have already found? Do you understand what Calvin is saying? We would be quite mad now to look for in ourselves what we found at first solely in him. Keep on dealing with Christ by faith. 
The way to have assurance is to have faith and to go on with faith until you have assurance. It's just as simple as that. And is that not what Paul is doing here when he says what he says in verses 33 and 34? He's stating not only the doctrine. Indeed, as I said, he's already done that in chapters 1 through 4. But he's doing so in what Jonathan Edwards calls an assured strain. I like that way of putting it. And oh, that we would be able to state our own confidence in the doctrine of justification in that way always. With an assured strain, not in a doubting way, but as those who are sure. He's stating his certainty and his confidence in the gospel when he says, who is there who brings a charge? Who is he who condemns? So it's, in the end, the simplest of tests. Faith, once more, looks not to itself and its own works, but to Christ alone for the grace of justification. And so it simply asks whether he is able to do for the soul what he has promised. Is Christ able to save me? Is Christ able to justify me, a sinner? When he says, I am your life and your justification... Is that what the soul finds in coming to him? When he says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Is that what the soul finds? Here I think of the famous story of Dabney. And a letter that, that was written to him by his friend. I don't think I have time to read the letter. I'll summarize the letter. He talks to him about a bridge. You know, the great Dabney was doubting at the end of his life and his friend, he was struggling for assurance. No surprise there from what I'm about to say in the second part of the sermon. You'll see that's a common experience. But he says, think about a traveler. This is the friend speaking to Dabney. He says, think about the traveler who comes to a bridge and he asks himself, am I going to cross the bridge? He says, what do you do? What's the way to be sure? Is it to examine your own heart to, to ask, do I have confidence enough to cross the bridge? Or that's examining yourself. Or do I just stoop down and examine the bridge? How do I get confidence in the bridge? Is it, is it by my own heart or is it by looking to the bridge itself? He says, that's how the soul must reason with itself in times of doubt. What we must consider is not whether we have faith sufficient to be saved, again, seeking to measure my faith. Is it great enough? How much faith do we, do we have? If we ask that question, the answer will always be never enough. Never enough. That's not the question to ask. What we must consider is the bridge. Is Christ sufficient to save us? Is his righteousness sufficient to justify us? And when that dawns upon the soul, the glory of Christ and his work, the soul will venture out upon him. That is how faith becomes assurance. That is how faith becomes sure and confident. It isn't by measuring itself or reflecting upon itself. It is simply by reflecting upon the strength of its object. By relying on something sure and certain. Resting upon it, to use the language of the shorter catechism. Something that is able to do what it seeks for itself. I seek righteousness before God. I seek his favor. I seek his love. I find such things not in myself. But I find them abundantly supplied in Jesus Christ. And in him alone. So to the question, 
Can I know that God is favorable to me, a sinner? Can I know it in such a way that I am assured and I'm enjoying it? The answer is, faith finds its answer not in itself, but in Christ alone. Again, to quote Calvin, would we not be quite mad to look outside of Christ for what we have already obtained in him and for what can be found solely in him? Well, that's just the first part of the sermon. That's why I didn't have time to read the letter. I can share it with anyone who wants. There's a second part of the sermon. And that is those things which stand in the way. And those things which stand in the way of the believer enjoying God's stated design, namely our enjoyment of the blessing, are the errors which he confronts along the way, along his pilgrimage, which occurred to him perhaps in his own mind. And so much of the apostles' teaching, especially here, is to overturn the errors. And I've yet to speak of any of these. And I think it would be a mistake not to mention them. There are two main errors which obscure the doctrine of justification and thus our enjoyment of it. And it seems obvious to me that Paul is dealing with both of them in Romans chapter 8. The first error which would rob us of our assurance. It couldn't rob us of our justification, but it could rob us of our enjoyment of it, is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says, uh, and that is our propensity to imagine terrible possibilities. I like that way of putting it. The soul in times of despair and and, uh, and doubt and perplexity is only there because it imagines a terrible possibility that is in fact not true and cannot be true. What he imagines is something like this. This is what Lloyd-Jones describes in his sermon. He imagines that the believer has been justified. The verdict has been rendered. The believer has come to enjoy that experience of God's grace. And then he has some terrible fall into sin. And what happens as a result of that in his experience is that his own sense of salvation is entirely lost. He's lost his assurance. But what's actually behind his sense of that is that he imagines, here's the terrible possibility, that his case was taken up again in the courts of heaven. That Satan has uh, issued his objection and that God is once more considering it. The case is being reviewed, it's being revisited. That's what leads the believer into a state of despair. His justification was called into question, and now God is entertaining it once more. You see, not just the believer. Well, verses 33 and 34 are designed to help us to face this when it happens. Whenever there is any inclination in the soul that our justification is in doubt because of some fall into sin, and when Satan comes with all of his might and his fury and his accusations, we need to, know, we need to be able to say, who shall bring a charge against God's elected? It is God who, is, who justifies The verdict has been rendered. The case is closed. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore who is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. The work is finished. Sin has been put away. Salvation is accomplished. But there is a second error, and it is the opposite error. It is the error of the hypocrite. The man who abuses the doctrine, the man who seems to enjoy assurance, but it is a false assurance. It is a false confidence. The man who boasts in justification, the man who boasts in grace alone and who is utterly lost. 
The thing about the hypocrite is his confidence. He is the most assured person in the world. In fact, if anything, as I hope to say, he's a little too sure. But here's the problem the believer faces. The believer, aware of that, the, the greatest sin in the whole world is that of hypocrisy. And the hallmark of the hypocrite is his assurance. It's a false assurance, but it's his assurance. It's his confidence. The believer aware of that, being afraid of that, is almost afraid to be sure, lest he be found to be a hypocrite. Do you understand what I'm saying? This keeps too many believers from enjoying assurance. How do we unpack that idea? Well, my answer, my short answer is read the, read the religious affections. And I really mean that. That entire work was written to help the believer uh, navigate those troubled waters because those are the troubled waters of the soul. But if I were to condense his whole argument, I would do so like this. And I think Paul is doing the same thing, especially in the earlier parts of Romans chapter 8 when he describes those who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the spirit. It's to understand the difference between the carnal professor and the godly believer. The difference between the hypocrite and the true Christian. What's the position? So it's the difference between two positions. What's the position of the hypocrite? The, the position is this. He enjoys a false confidence and assurance. The trouble with him is that it's too easy. There's no difficulty about his assurance. Edwards says of him, this is probably my favorite line in the whole book. He says, the devil does not assault the hope of the hypocrite as he does the hope of the true saint. And so the hypocrite is someone who knows nothing of the struggle for assurance. So, too, he knows nothing of the perplexity the true saint often feels that any grace should at all appear in a cloud of so much sin. And so Edwards goes on to say, he who has a false hope has not that sight of his own corruptions, which the saint has. A false hope hides corruption, covers it over, and the hypocrite looks clean and bright in his own eyes. That's why he's so confident. It's because he doesn't really see the evil of his own sin. It's not because he understands the doctrine of justification. And yet, would you be surprised to know that in many cases, justification by grace through faith becomes his favorite doctrine? I am saying, now I'm, I'm speaking in addition to Edwards, I'm saying that the hallmark, hallmark, at least today in the Protestant church of the hypocrite, is his boast in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's his favorite doctrine. He says something like this. God justifies the ungodly. Therefore, do not talk to me about my sin. Who shall bring a charge against me? Who is there to, uh, to, to condemn? And so he thinks. And he relieves his soul with this thought. Ah, oh, now, no one can ever talk to me about my sin again. No one has any right ever again to accuse me. You see, the man is too ready to claim God's grace without ever really considering the evil of his own sin. That is, without any thought of true repentance in which the grace of God appears in the soul. And so he loves the gospel, or so he thinks, because it becomes a convenient excuse either to go on sinning or to never think of it again. I'll give an example. It's a disturbing example, but it is a relevant example because it's something we're dealing with in the broader Reformed Church. Any of you familiar with the Revoice movement in the PCA, although I think they've mostly left the PCA by now? 
the so-called gay Christians, would you be surprised if I told you their favorite doctrine by far was that of justification by faith alone? Now, I find that perplexing in a way. I've been trying to understand it. They're, they're, they, they glory especially in Luther's doctrine of simul justus et peccator. That is simultaneously just and sinner. Gay Christian, do you understand? And what they're claiming when they glory in Luther's doctrine is not their wonder of what God's grace saves them from. They're not speaking as Paul did when he said, I'm the chief of sinners, yet God's grace appeared in me still. First Timothy chapter one. What they're saying is this, in essence, that God's grace entitles them to go on with their sin, however vile, because God's grace shields them from your accusations of sin. Even if it's sins of the heart, you say, well, they're not practicing. These are sins of the heart. They're sins of identity. You may not accuse them of sin. Do you see how pernicious that is? That's always, by the way, how the antinomian thinks. He always seeks refuge in the grace of God. And he says, you can't speak to me. You can't accuse me. Who is there to accuse me? You see, you, you, you see, they would say to attack their sin or even their inclination to sin, their sinfulness is to attack the cardinal doctrine of justification. You're a legalist. What a clever scheme that is. It's the scheme of the hypocrite. We have to be prepared to deal with those who seek refuge in the doctrines we love. Whereas here is the true saint. Of him, Edward says, the devil is a great enemy to a true Christian hope. I read earlier that he is not the enemy of the, the, the unbeliever's hope, but he is the enemy of a believer's hope. And there is perhaps no true Christian but what has his hope assaulted by him. You see, there's the paradox, there's the irony. It's that uh, the unbeliever in his doubts actually has great reason to be sure. It's a very good sign that he's a true believer. It's actually the man who has no doubts that might wonder about himself. So too, Edward says, a true Christian has ten times so much to do with his heart and its corruptions as a hypocrite. And it often appears a very mysterious thing that any grace can be consistent with such corruption. Well, is it not already plain in what ways these two men are made to differ? A true Christian knows a true conviction of sin. And that is what terrifies his soul. It's that he's dealt with his own heart, the blackness of his own heart. And he is aware of this, that he deserves to be condemned. The law is speaking to him. It's dealing with him and it's saying this. You are a sinner. And you deserve the condemnation and the wrath of God for sin. And it is from such a disposition, his very willingness to deal with the sin of his own heart. And to wrestle with it. And even to listen to others who say, you know, that's sinful. And he owns it. He doesn't become defensive. It is that very will, willingness to grapple with the sinfulness of his own sin that the struggle for assurance arises. For he says, how could grace ever be mingled with such corruption of heart? But the hypocrite never does this. A true Christian knows what it is to doubt, whereas the hypocrite does not. But a true Christian is someone who delights in God's grace, not because of a secret delight in his sin or a desire to justify it, but out of a true sight and sense 
of the evil of his own sin. And it is precisely at such times when his soul is loaded with the guilt of sin that God's free grace in Christ in justifying the ungodly appears to him most lovely. When sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. That's the end of Romans chapter 5. For just then, God's grace in justifying him occurs to him in such a way that he's able to say along with Paul, who is he who brings a charge? Who is he who condemns? You see, now he's facing his accusers. Now he's beginning to believe in this assured way. And he delights in free grace, not as though to sin more, but as a matter of pure wonder that God should justify any as sinful as he. Here is a man who was truly burdened by sin, by the guilt of sin, and by grace he gets rid of his burden. But then do you see what I'm describing as justification experimentally? Justification is a genuine experience of grace. And what I'm saying is that anyone whom God has truly justified knows something of this. He's gotten his burden off his back. The load of his guilt is taken away. Shall he go on then feeling condemned every time he sins? The truth is he may and often will. He'll feel condemned when he sins. But here is precisely where where our experience of grace comes in. In times of doubt, in times of despair, in times where the soul is burdened or loaded with the conscious guilt of sin, we must remind ourselves what God's grace has already done for us and then learn what it is to stand in the grace of justification. Romans chapters five, chapter five, verses one and two. Let me distill the difference then between these two men by three statements. And it it all comes down to their conception of grace. One man views God justifying sin itself, the presence of sin. The other views God justifying the sinner in spite of sin. One man gets rid of his burden. The other strangely seeks to keep it. One man turns from sin truly and by grace makes great strides in the pursuit of holiness. The other stubbornly claims God's grace every time his lack of progress in holiness becomes evident to him and to others. Such then is the difference. And the believer, understanding this, need not fear that his assurance is false. You see, that's how you avoid the sin of the hypocrite. It's that you understand the sin of the hypocrite. You understand the position of the hypocrite. You see in what ways your position differs from his. And so you're able to rest easy. You're able to stand in the grace of God by which you've been justified. You're able to rejoice. You're able to glory. You're able to say along with Paul, who is he who condemns? Who will bring a charge against me? Such that God's design, as Edward says, is fully realized in us, not only in our justification, but in our enjoyment of it. And I ask you now in closing, do you know anything about that? Is that your experience? I'm not asking you if you understand the doctrine theoretically. I am asking you that as a preliminary question, but I'm going well beyond that. I'm asking you something far more personal. Do you know what it is to be justified by faith in an experimental sense, such that you are able to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, such that you are able to stand in the face of your accusers, whether it be your own conscience, 
conscience or the world or the devil. And still to glory. And still to stand in the grace of justification. Do you know justification as an experience of God's grace? Have you sought God's favor and in Christ found it? As something that is sure, something that is certain, something that is final. It occurs to the soul, having fully grasped, having fully realized the grace of God in Christ, that nothing now can ever separate me from his love. Nothing now can ever overturn his verdict. I am safe. My salvation is certain. I am in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Has that truth fully occurred to you? Has it come to you with power? As we considered in Sunday school, as Augustine uh, considered in his own conversion experience, he knew the words of scripture, but now they came to him with power. Is that your experience, I ask you? Well, we'll go on from here to consider the love of Christ, but thank God for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Amen. And let us come to the table.